Please remain standing for the reading of the word. Uh, today's sermon text comes from John 8:48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. John chapter 8. If you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn your Bibles there. John chapter 8. And we'll go ahead and pray as you're turning there. Lord, we know that the nations rage against you, plotting in vain. But you, you sit in heaven and you scoff at them. And you will speak to them in your anger. God, you have installed your son, your king, upon high upon Zion, the holy mountain. And we will sing of the decree that the Lord said unto me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. God, we thank you for your son who is eternally begotten of you. The Father, we thank you that we have a Son whom we worship and adore and honor and praise who is from eternity past and will be forever receiving the glory of the saints and the glory of you through the future ages, unending God. So we just ask that as we come to you in your text that you would Soften our hearts and open our minds, God. Pull the scales off our eyes that we might perhaps behold the glory of your Son and delight in him and worship him, God. That we wouldn't pick up stones to cast at him, to throw at him, to revile him. God, we can't do this great labor in and of ourselves. We need your spirit to work in us, we ask for your spirit to come and to make you and your glory known. Amen. Amen. 
One of the dearest memories and places that Rachel and I have is in Yosemite Valley. And one of our, been there several times and camped there and did everything like that. And one of our greatest memories is hiking, waking all the way up to the top of Half Dome. And when you're up there, you can, it's quite nice. I suggest that you go right to the edge and kind of peer over and you can see all of the valley below you. And it's beautiful. And when you're in the valley, you know that it's beautiful and you enjoy it. And you look up and you see Bridal Falls and El Capitan and crazy people climbing it. And you wish you were them, but you know you can't. And so that's that. Maybe a different life. But things are beautiful in the valley. But when you get out of the valley and then rise up and then get to the top of the mountain... That which you knew was beautiful in the valley then becomes glorious. It's unending. As far as the eye can see, you see mountaintop upon mountaintop upon mountaintop. This way and that way and to the north and to the south. Everywhere. And you see God's beauty just raining down. Much of our understanding of Christ is in the same way. Much of our lives is spent in the valley with these restricted views of Christ. Is it beautiful? Yes. Are we thankful to be there? Absolutely. But what we will see in our text, it will draw us up out of the valley and then place us on the mountaintops. And then you will be able to see and behold and delight in the fact that we worship an eternal God, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God the Father. That's what I want you to dwell on for the rest of this week. That Jesus Christ, whom I pray you adore, is the eternal Son of God. He's not just the Son. He's not just the Son of God the Father. No, no, no. It's not just that. He's the eternal Son of God the Father. From eternity past, He has been there. Being glorified by the Father. Now, interceding, as you always will be, on your behalf as the great high priest through the rest of the ages to come. So how are we going to see that in our text here? Well, the first part, verses 48 through 51, you're going to see that Christ is glorified by the Father. And then in 52, well, let's go 52 to 56, you're going to see this interaction with Abraham. And then the fact that Christ, this, the eternal son, was longed for by Abraham. So he's glorified by the Father. He was the one Abraham longed to see. But he's the one who's also, at the end of our text, we're going to see that he's rejected by men. He's glorified by the Father, longed for by Abraham. But then finally, he's also rejected by men. Let's go to the text here. Verse 48. And the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's fantastic. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, if anyone keeps my word, what's the promise? He will never see death. So what's 
What's happening here? This is not your, your typical engagement between godly men, right? Perhaps this isn't part of your interactions at community group when you guys are hanging out and having fellowship, calling each other Samaritans and demons, right? But here we have, we have these men gathered to de- at the temple where the sacrifices are going to be made, where this soothing aroma, this is the picture of the sacrifice, that the soothing aroma is then arising up to God the Father, and he is pleased with it, because we know that there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And you recall from last week, there's this, it, this is a continuation of this conversation that's been going on now for quite some time. The temple, uh, in the temple with the festival of booths. Remember from last week that Christ told them, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciple and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they respond, well, free from what? What do you mean free? We've never been enslaved to anybody. You know, never mind the... the the Egyptians and every, basically any great empire that's been there is, is subjected the Jewish people in Israel. Free, free from what? Don't you know that we have Abraham as our father? And Christ says, well, you are doing the will of your father, but your father is not Abraham. Your father is the devil. And of course you're doing his will. That's why you want to kill me. Your father, the devil, has been killing people since, from, since the beginning. And you will do his will. So don't think that you're children of Abraham. That's why you seek to kill me. So that is why they cannot understand the words of Christ. Because they're not of God. They have a different father. A different language. So. You you see their gracious response to all of that. They, they tell him, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So when someone comes to you with a correction and your response is anger and indignation and insulting them, chances are they're right. Okay? That's kind of what you see happening here. So they call him a Samaritan, you know, from 2 Kings 17. These are the ones that the, the ten tribes, the kingdom divides. After Solomon, the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes are then carried off in 722 to Assyria, never to be found again. But there's a remnant there that are left there. In 2 Kings 17, you see the Babylonians and some of these other nations that the Syrians had also conquered were being brought in there to settle them. So what they would do is to break the power of these ethnic people is that they would kind of scatter them and mix them. So you don't have an identity anymore. And so it's easier for the Assyrians to force their identity upon you. So you have these these people that are left and then the Babylonians and all of these foreign nations are coming in and then they begin to mix culturally, ethnically. They mix together. And so they're, they're kind of seen as the Jews from Judah, who remain, they're seen as half-breeds. I mean, it's bad enough to be a Gentile, but if you take our pure, righteous, beautiful Jewish blood and mix it with them, that's a horrible thing. So these, these Samaritans were looked down upon, and it became kind of a slur. And when you have then a, a theological people, that kind of that half-breed, you're impure, it kind of morphs into this, well, you're not pure, you're, you're a heretic. That's what you are. So they're calling him 
this, this half-breed, this heretic, that is what they're telling him. And they're having this, this identity dispute between Christ and the Jews. Who is able to lay claim to the title of being a true descendant of Abraham, the Pharisees, or Christ? And if you're going to call him a heretic, why not just add demon, you know, possessed by a demon on top of it? And it which is, again, another way of saying that he's crazy. But how does Christ respond? Look at the text. Well, how, how would you respond? Think of the last time you were directly insulted. How did you respond? Some of you are, are quick and you can think of something on the spot. And I envy you. I mean, for me, it's like a day later. And I think, oh, I should have said this. And that would have been awesome. You know, that's my, my so thankfully I can't think on the spot at all. And, but how does Christ respond? He says it so beautifully. I do not have a demon. No, I don't have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Peter writes of this, he says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Though fully in his right, Christ does not respond in the way that they deserve. But why? Why is he able to respond in such a, a beautiful, meek way? They dishonor him, and that's not of his concern. Because the Father is the one who is glorifying the Son. Yet I do not seek my own glory, in verse 50. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Commentator writes, says, you must notice Christ's disregard for the applause of men. You must notice Christ's disregard for the applause of men. Those who are dead to the praises of men can bear their contempt. Those who are dead to the praises of men can bear their contempt. God will honor and seek to honor those who do not seek to honor themselves. So here is Christ, knowing that he is going to be glorified by God the Father. So you can accuse me of whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I'm going to be glorified by my Father. John 5, 41, he says, it just says quite clearly, I do not receive the glory of men. I don't seek it. I don't want it. I will never receive it unless they are made alive by the Spirit. We spend our lives doing the most dishonorable things to seek the praise of men. Pastors are, are not immune to this. Mothers are not immune to this. Businessmen are not immune to this. We're made in the image of God, and so we are wired to seek approval. We're wired to seek approval. 
But we should be seeking the approval of God. Imagine, how are we going to be satisfied with the approval of men when we are made in the image of God to seek his approval? So if you want to stand strong against the world, don't seek their honor. Don't seek their praise. Seek the glory of God the Father. And then you'll be able to bear up against their contempt. And if you think it might be difficult now, just wait five years. As a Christian, it's only going to get harder. So what's happening here? How does, it, how does this interaction work out? So you see the, the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're the ones who are, are dishonoring the Son while the Son is honoring the Father. And then the Father is glorifying the Son. See that? See that in the text? So this, this honor, the Pharisees, they think they're honoring God the Father, but they're not. They're dishonoring the Son. And by dishonoring the Son, you're going to dishonor the Father. And the glory that they think is going to shine down upon them from the Father is actually going to the Son. The very one whom they dishonor, the very one whom they abhor and despise. How dangerous, how dangerous for us to presume that we know God, but we actually have no relationship with him whatsoever. Here are the Pharisees living these, these righteous religious lives, thinking that they're honoring God the Father, but they couldn't have been doing any more wrong. <laughs> They embodied sin and rejecting Christ. How many have been wrapped up in religiosity? But they do not love and they do not honor. And they do not glorify the Son. Hell will be filled with very few atheists but scores upon scores of men and women who live impeccable, like these Pharisees, impeccable religious lives on the outside. Impeccable religious lives according to their standards, according to the standards of those around them, live impeccable lives. But scores of them will hear, depart from me, for I never knew you. And those will be the last words they hear. Don't be found among those who will be pleading their own case on the day to come. Let your plea be nothing but the blood of Jesus again and again and again. See here, see the glory. Verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. In fact, this is nothing new. This has been happening since before the foundation of the world. You see in John 17, in this great priestly prayer, and Christ is praying, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
God the Father has made the Son the object of his glory. In eternity past, and that's happening in our text, and that will continue to happen throughout the rest of the future into eternal praise and glory towards Christ. You see this, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it is this glory from God the Father, this Father who is also the judge. Which is why Christ is able to say, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, this should sound quite familiar, quite similar to last week. Remember? If you abide in my word, truly you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you abide in my, in, my, in, my, in my word, if you keep my word, then you'll be set free. You will not see death. You'll be set free from sin and all of the consequences. So these, verse, these words that Christ are speaking, let me just explain it. God the Father is the judge. Christ is speaking the words of, Christ, of God the Father. Verse 28 of the same chapter, he says, I do nothing in my own initiative, but I speak the words of my Father. Right? You see that in John 5 as well. He says, my teaching, or in John 7, he says, my teaching is not mine, but of him who sent me. And then in John 6, the words which I have spoken to you, our spirit and our life. So if he is speaking the words of the Father, who is also the judge, wouldn't it make sense that if you abide in these words, then who are directly from the Father through the Son, that you would be safe? Absolutely. What better place to be than in the arms of the judge? It is there that you will be safe. So not, do not despise the words of Christ. Don't abhor them. Don't push them aside. But rather, let them soak into your hearts like a nice soft spring rain. And then you will have life. And you will never see death. There's this great result of the curse. So as we follow our parents and forefathers to the grave... Yes, but we shall never die. So as we have the words of this judge of God the Father through the Son given to us. And this is why they are never burdensome. But they are nourishment and they are life. And by abiding in the word and keeping the words of Christ is, be, is to be safe in him from the judge, from the Father. So what have we seen so far? We'll keep going here. What have we seen so far? The Pharisees who presume they are righteous and religious and everybody around them applauds them because they meet their own standards and the standards of others. They think they are honoring the Father, but they are actually dishonoring the Son. It is the Son who honors the Father. We're no different than the Pharisees. If you want to honor the Father, you honor the Son. There's no way to get to the Father except through the Son. 
You can't push him aside. You can't say that you love God and not love the son. So this dishonor has been placed upon the son, even though they think they're honoring God the Father. But it is God the Father who is glorifying the son. There is one who seeks it, the father who seeks the glorification of his son. Now we're going to see that even Abraham, even Abraham, who the Pharisees are appealing to, even he is the one who is looking forward to the Messiah. Let's go back to the text in verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Pharisees are saying, we thought we, you were crazy before, but now we absolutely know that you are crazy. What you're saying cannot be true. What you're saying is that if anyone keeps your words, that they will not die. But Abraham, our father, he died. Therefore, you must not be telling the truth. Again, the issue is that they, they, they take the words in an earthly, literal sense, and their eyes are unable to lift up to the heavens to see the spiritual truth. And so when they think of, when they hear death, they just think, literal death. My heart stopped, and they buried me. So this can't be true, unless you, Christ, are saying that you are greater than Abraham and the prophets. You see the argumentation that's going on here. Check. How does he respond? So why, why this Abraham? Why, why him? He's been brought last week and then this week as well. Abraham is just this great forefather of Judaism. Obviously, there's others who went before him. Noah, Adam. But it's hard to look to Adam you know, the federal head of sin as the, the found of your, of your spiritual well. But Abraham, he, Abraham is the one who received all the promises of God that would begin unrolling the curses that we see that happened in the garden. It is Abraham whom God pulled and he walked in obedience, leaving the land of earth, not knowing where he was going, but just walked in obedience. Go. Where are we going? I don't know. Go. Okay, I'll start walking. And it is this Abraham that the Lord came and spoke to him. Go. Go from your country and from your kindred, kindred and your father's house and to the land that I will show you and I will make you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. And in you, and in you, Abraham, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a massive promise that is given, that the Jewish people are holding on to. Even today, they are holding on to it, especially in the time of Christ. And it's this covenant that God made with Abraham that in him all of the nations, everyone would be blessed. So the question is, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? Is it going to be through the keeping of the law? Pharisees would say, absolutely it will. We must be keeping the Mosaic law. But then Christ comes along and says, no, no, no. All of these blessings from Abraham that were promised to him, they're not going to come to you through the obedience of the law. That's not it. Try as you may. It will only show you that you need someone who can keep the law. So the, the promises of Abraham, who they're clinging to, is not driving them towards obedience of the law. It should be driving them towards Christ who can keep the law. It is Christ. And all of these covenants in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. They make their way towards Christ. Not through the law. Straight line towards Christ. Christ. Paul writes that in order that in Christ the blessings of Abraham, in Christ the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. So they're saying, you can't be greater than Abraham. There's only one who's greater than Abraham. And that's God. Christ responds, I don't, I don't, okay, you want me to glorify myself? I'm not going to glorify myself. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I don't, I don't need to glorify myself. I have a father, father in heaven. He will glorify me. The very one whom you say, he is our God. But let me tell you, you don't actually know him. And I have to tell you this because I cannot lie. You don't know him. But me, I, Christ is saying, I keep his word. I speak it to you fully. I speak it to you faithfully. Not only that, I keep his word. And Christ tells them, in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. Abraham saw it and was glad. Now in Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 12, you have these, this promise that is given to Abraham, this, this covenant, uh, or this promise. And then in, in Genesis 15, you have this covenant ceremony. Uh, and then Genesis 17, you have the sign of the covenant, circumcision that's going on. So they've talked about 12 a little bit. And then we're in 15. Chapter 15, verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep 
a dreadful sleep fell upon Abram, and a great darkness fell upon him. Now in the Targums, which would have been taught and quite familiar with the Jewish people then, especially the Pharisees. Now what the Targums are teaching is that when this dreadful sleep had fallen upon Abraham, he saw all of the nations that would bring the, his descendants into subjection. But he not only saw that, he saw the day of their deliverance. And so you have this tradition, with the Jewish tradition happening, that Abraham actually saw the day of the Messiah. So tradition is telling them from the Targums, from Genesis 15, that Abraham is looking forward to the day of the Messiah. And as they read the Old Testament, the, the good Jew knows everything is about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. They miss it. But everything is pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. So even Abraham, in this deep and dreadful sleep, sees the, the suffering of God's people and then sees their deliverance in the great day to come, the day of the Messiah. He sees that day. And here is Christ on this side saying, Abraham saw me and my day. What is he telling them? I'm the Messiah. The one you look to. Your spiritual forefather. The hope of him... You place your hope in him. His hope was placed in me, is what Christ is telling them. And then they obviously, they respond, keeping their eyes down here completely. You're not even yet 50 years old. How? How is that possible? How have you, how have you seen Abraham? How has Abraham seen you? And then comes the kill shot. You can see how the pieces have been moving back and forth throughout this argument. They're escalating it, forcing him to, they want him to say what he's going to say. Why? So they can get rid of him. They're not foolish in what they're saying. They're trying to force his hand into saying it. And he's happy to oblige. And so then comes the kill shot. Before Abraham was, I am. Did Abraham look to see Christ after he had come? Absolutely. Did Christ exist before Abraham ever existed? Absolutely. So here is Christ fully existing thousands of years after Abraham has come. And here is Christ existing before Abraham was even born. I am and he gives him the, the most clearest claim of divinity that is possible. When Moses is in the presence of the burning bush and asked, Whom shall I tell the people who has sent me? I can't just come, right? Who am I going to say has, has sent me to talk to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am. I am has sent me to you. So Christ is quite clearly, obviously telling them that he, I am greater than your spiritual forefather. I was after him. I existed before him. I am the eternal son of God. They get it. That's why they're picking up stones and they want to crucify or kill him, stone him. The response should be awe and worship. Our response should be awe and worship at this Son, the eternal Son of God the Father. 
He has come in. And thus far, we, what have we seen so far? That he is the light of the world. He is the one upon whom the angels descend and ascend back into heaven, bringing us the presence of God. Thus it makes sense that he is the true temple. He said, you can tear this down in three days, I'll rise it up again. I am the true temple. I am the place where the presence of God dwells. He is the one the Son of Man who will be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. He is the one who is the living water from whom springs forth this eternal life. And He is the one who healed the nobleman's son. And He is the one who perfectly does the will of the Heavenly Father. And He is the one who is the bread of life of whom people partake. And if you partake of this bread of life, you will never hunger again. He is the word of life, and he is the light of life, and he is the eternal Son of God. All of that in John, we're not even halfway through. So what do we do? We have two minutes. <laughs> Why does it matter that Christ is the eternal Son of God? What does this do in our hearts? Number one, it... The eternal Christ places your temporal problems in perspective. We don't make light of difficulties of life. Actually, we reference them nearly every week. Uh, but they consume our thoughts. But the troubles of life are not like a smoldering log. No, they're, they're, a, they're a fire of twigs. There's little substance and a great big flame that rises up before you. But before you know it, they're gone. And then there's some other flaming pile of twigs over there. And trouble after trouble. No, 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 no. The troubles of life are just merely temporal. Shall something go beyond the care of our eternal Christ? Absolutely not. Will he be caught off guard? Absolutely not. Our eternal Christ will uphold you through all of these difficulties. So let us not think so great of our temporal troubles and thus so little of our eternal Christ. That's number one. Number two is that in eternal Christ, he demands all of your heart. All of the heavens are filled with the glory of Christ. All of the seas are filled with the glory of Christ. All of history past is filled with the glory of Christ. Even before time began, there is the glory of Christ existing. And the glory of Christ will go on and on and on and on. Never ending. If it's filling everything, shall it not fill all of your heart as well? There shall never be a, a deep cave or little cavern. Or even a shadow of your heart that the eternal Christ cannot fill. That the light of his glory shall not shine upon and transform. That you might bring him glory as well. Number one, an eternal Christ puts all of your temporal problems into perspective. Number two, an eternal Christ demands all of your heart. And then finally... An eternal Christ invites you to worship him in a greater way. When we think of Christ, it's natural. We restrict him from Bethlehem, Christmas, 
And then we end Christ at death, resurrection, um, 40 days, and then the ascension. Like we, we kind of restrict him to this. But in eternal crisis, he's way over here and he's way over here. And when you contemplate all of this glory, you can't even bring it all in. And you think of how he existed from eternity past. And you lose sight of how he will exist in all of future and all of glory. And you can't comprehend it. Children does not invite you to worship him in a deeper and truer and a more beautiful way. So in, a, in several minutes when we're singing all glory be to Christ, it's not this little sliver of 33 years. No, it's all of it. All of time, all of humanity, all of existence, even before Genesis 1. All of that shall behold the glory of Christ. So seeing Christ as the eternal Son of God will lift us up out of that valley. And give us a fuller view of who Christ truly is so that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son who was beautiful and worthy to be worshipped, God. We pray that we would, by your spirit, have eyes and hearts that are able to behold a glimmer of his glory, God. We know that the unfolding glory of your Son shall never be exhausted as it continues throughout all of eternity future, God, but we ask that you might be so gracious to reveal it to us as we come to you at the table and partake of the Lord's Supper, God, and as we worship you in song. Let us delight in your Son and know that we shall never be we shall never exhaust the glory of your Son. Amen. Amen.